Good morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I'm going to be reading the scripture passage that Pastor Benjamin is going to be preaching from this morning. Uh, it's on page 833 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to read along there, and it'll be on the screen as well. It's uh, chapter 1 of John, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is God's word. Thank you, Tony. When you're in a dark room, it, it really helps to have someone to follow, someone who can lead the way. And, and in a dark world, God intends for us to have faithful men and women who we can admire and emulate. But in our own day, it would seem that so few leaders are finishing well. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the life and in some ways the death of a man who witnessed well. He finished well. He finished in a way, he lived and finished in a way we could admire and emulate. Before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I do pray that this morning as we study your word and this life and this witness of a man called John, that you would both at the same times and maybe even to different people be challenging us and comforting us. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to love your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There would be many ways to describe the darkness of the world that first received Jesus Christ. One way to describe just one aspect, so one way to describe just one aspect of the darkness of the world that first received Jesus Christ would be to describe the fracturing of the one true religion, the one true Old Testament faith, the Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith, the Hebrew faith was the only true faith, the only true religion. But if we were alive at the time of Jesus Christ, our experience of the one true faith would not have been singular or monolithic, meaning we would not have experienced the one true Hebrew faith as one faith, as one voice. Rather, our experience would have been fractured. To use the word Phil used, polarized. Our experience would have been one of tribalism, differing factions within the one true religion. God is one, but his people were many, and not in the good way. Everyone had their favorite 
news channel. Everyone had their favorite church denomination. And in some cases, the difference between someone's deeply held secular political views and their religious views were not all that different and not in the good way. You might not be aware of this religious splintering if you're only casually familiar with the world of the New Testament, the world of Israel, the world of the Roman Empire in the year of our Lord. But let me help you. Let me help us. First, there were the Pharisees. The most well-known group, probably, because of the way Jesus and the Pharisees continually locked antlers throughout the Gospels. Which might lead you to believe that the Pharisees were, therefore, the worst manifestation of the Hebrew faith. Maybe. Some point out, though, that they were the biggest, and in some ways the best, version of the Jewish denominational options at the time. Which is why Jesus went after them so strongly. And so prominently. The Pharisees took the law of God seriously. And rather than repeating the mistakes of those who came before them, they built rules on top of laws and statutes on top of precepts so that they would not repeat the liberal, wishy-washy falling away of so many who had come before them and frankly were currently around them. Speaking of liberal or progressive, there were also the Sadducees. They tended to be less serious about God's word, not believing in a resurrection or angels or several other doctrines. The Sadducees tended to be wealthy and they were more likely to collude with the Roman authorities when it suited them. Speaking of Rome, they were the Jewish zealots. These were the people who who wanted to overthrow Rome who was occupying Israel at the time, and at times they made attempts to do so, that is, overthrow. And then on the far end, if the zealots are over here, if, if on the other end you would have what I'll call the Jewish tax collectors. I've been talking in religious categories, but to name the Jewish tax collectors who worked for Rome and abusively extorted their money from their own people. It wasn't like our taxes now. It was more like the mob There were those who did that. When I describe them in this categories of religious, what I'm trying to say is actually the absence of religion in their lives makes them noteworthy. They held their national and Hebrew identity and spirituality so lowly that they loved wealth more than God. Now, just as an aside, consider that when Jesus calls the 12 disciples, he has one zealot at least and one tax collector would have made for some interesting small group Bible studies, right? Then there were the Essenes. We don't, we don't read much about the Essenes, and there's a reason for that. The Essenes looked at all the darkness and all the fracturing around them, and they bailed. They went to live in caves and form alternate communities of faith, their own schools, in the hope that they might find purity through abstention, purity through withdrawal. They were, maybe in our words we would describe them as the monks and the nuns. And then finally, there's there's what we should call the, the faithful believing remnant of Hebrew people. A remnant mingled in all these other factions and then sometimes outside of all of those factions altogether. A remnant who longed for the Messiah to come. And now by definition, the remnant was not many in number, but we do read about many of them in the Christmas story. 
In Luke 1 and 2, we read about women like Elizabeth and Anna and Mary. We read about men like Zechariah, Simeon, Joseph. I presume others go without mention. Again, one way to describe just one aspect of the darkness of the world that first received Jesus is to describe the fractured nature of the one true religion. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the tax collectors, the Essenes, the faithful remnant, mingled in that and outside of all of that. And to describe the darkness further, I'll mention that there's no Davidic line of kings sitting on the throne. Instead, what you have ruling over Israel under Roman authority is a group of men, a family line called Herod's, family named Herod. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod the First, Herod the Second, and others. And they're all awful. To highlight the darkness even more, there had not been. Just let this sink in. There had not been an authorized prophet of the Lord speaking the pure, inspired word of God for over 400 years. The intertestamental time, as we call it, that is the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, was a time not without activity. There was plenty of activity, but there was not, it was a time without a word from the Lord, a prophet of the Lord with a word from the Lord. And so from the end of the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, which Ben, pointing over here, he read at the beginning of our worship service, to the beginning of the New Testament, there were 400 years of silence. And we could talk of awkward pauses of silence and conversation. Here was four centuries of awkward pause in a conversation with God. Why? Until, until God began to speak through a prophet and a wild man named John. We often call him John the Baptist because of the way baptism featured prominently in his ministry. But it would be better perhaps to call him John the Witness. For that's how our passage identifies him. Look with me again at John chapter 1 verses 6, 7, and 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now just to clarify, there's John the Apostle who's writing John's Gospel. This is John, John the Witness, this will be called. Verse 7, he came, John the Witness, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Into the darkness, God sent a man to witness, to preach light and heat to a people in great darkness. Amid all the fracturing, even what we might say the shattering of the one true religion, or what seemed to be the shattering of the one true religion, the Hebrew faith, God began to call his people back to himself through one voice, a ray, one ray of light on the east side of the Jordan River, so outside of Israel, who challenged the people of God to keep the main thing the main thing, namely, riveting their attention 
on the promise of God's strong, holy, firm, loving kindness that God would give to them in the person of the Messiah. Or the Christ, same word. That's how God used John. And when I look at all the fracturing in our world, in a way, I would say, that's what we still need. Faithful human witnesses who point away from themselves and to the beauty of the Messiah. We need women and men who keep the main thing the main thing. Who witness to Jesus as the light and faithfully shine out the implications of that light for our lives. So, so, so why pay attention to John? John the witness. Why in the introduction to John's gospel, which we call this prologue, the first 18 verses, why does John give attention to this other John, John the witness? Why should we pay attention? Why does God want us to pay attention? I think God wants us to pay attention to God the witness, or John the witness, because John shows us in a fractured world what faithful human witnessing to the light looks like. And we need that today. My words are intentional when I say faithful human witness. He's a faithful human witness. Those are the two points I want to make about him. First John was a faithful witness and he was a human witness. When I say faithful witness, what I have in mind is a love for God, his head and his heart, that led to a love of truth that led to boldness. So when I say faithful, what I have here in mind, there could be other manifestations of faithfulness in different contexts, but what I have in mind here, when I speak about John as a faithful witness, I have a, a love for God that led to a love of truth that led to a boldness. It's part of what God used to get people ready to embrace the light, and it still is. Now, a few weeks ago, I sent an email to the whole church about some new job openings here at our church. Um, and the email service we use, when, when you go on, you log in and you use it, uh, when you're writing the email, there's a subject line and the, the sentence sitting right next to it when there's coaching on how to set the email, it says, put an emoji in the subject line. That's what it says. Right, this is going to go somewhere. <laughs> and I usually ignore that. But a couple weeks ago, since we were hiring new people, we've got job descriptions, I put the smiley face with the cool dude with the glasses the, the sunglass glass emoji guy, smiling. I thought that fit. Anyway, last week, there was a lot of things going on, and I sent another email to church, and I just copied and pasted and started with the same template. Sent another email to church, and I forgot to change in the subject line the emoji face with the cool dude and the sunglasses. Now, in the office, <laughs> the guys were dogging me as the resident old guy who needs to stop with all the e- emojis in the church emails. This is the relationship we have here in our church office. They get, they're like, not cool, bro. Not cool. And I say, okay, that's fine. But despite all of their uh, negativity on my emoji game, I pushed through and I titled this sermon Triple Fire Emoji. Uh, because it's my contention, and they didn't really go with me on this. It's still my contention. I'm, I'm up front, so it's, I get to decide. It's my contention that if John the Witness, if his sermons had been captured on YouTube, triple fire emoji, comment section, totally. 
And they would have taken little snippets of his sermon and they would have shared them with titles like John the Baptist owns religious leaders. That's what they would have said. Anyway, that's the explanation of the title. I thought you should know that. But I want to give two, <laughs> I want to give two moments of boldness in John the Baptist's preaching. And they're, they're different contexts. One of them is, is, is the fire of a public setting. The other is a fire to, to a broad audience. The other is the fire directed more narrowly. The first comes from Luke chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. Luke chapter 3. You don't have to. But in Luke chapter 3, we get a snippet of John's preaching out in a wilderness. Now, at one time or another, you've probably seen someone in an urban context stand on a stepladder, uh, raise their voice and draw a crowd. They're, they're street preaching. John was so sent by God that people went out into the middle of nowhere to hear him preach, not on a step stool on a street corner, but on a rock at a riverbed in the desert. And to those who came to hear him preach, this is just a snippet of what they would have heard. Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When John says, don't say to me, we have Abraham as our father, we might instead say, don't tell me you know God because as a kid your dad brought you to church. Show me your living faith by the way you live. Because God has poured gasoline into the chainsaw and he's primed the pump and he's laid it at the tree and he's ready to pull the cord. Fire, fire, fire. John shows us what it looks like to be a faithful witness. He shows us what it looks like to have a love for God that leads to a love of truth that leads to a boldness. It, what, it's what was needed. And it still is. So Luke 3 gives us one example. Matthew 14 gives us another glimpse of John's light and heat that he shined into a dark place. Although this time much more narrowly focused. John chapter 14 verses 3 and 4. You don't, you don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it. It's going to be convoluted and a mouthful, but I'll explain what it means. Quoting John chapter 3, verses 4, 13, verse, excuse me, John, ah, Matthew 14, verses 3 and 4. Herod seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. That's a mouthful. Dense. But essentially, 
a Jewish political leader named Herod had an affair with his half-brother's wife. Again, it wasn't simply a Roman leader and thus a secular politician, but it was a Jewish leader. And that detail, I think, is important. Perhaps we would say Herod was a politician who claimed to be a Christian or at least one who grew up in church. And John the witness told this married politician that it was wrong for him to have another man's wife. You shall not commit adultery, he said. And then Herod threw him in jail. This is part of what it means to be faithful. In a climate of political correctness, we must still be able to say to those who claim to be Christians that your conduct matters. Like There needs to be a, a integrity between our words and our lives. Especially if you're a public figure. We shouldn't have public figures who claim to be Christians and yet also commit unrepentant adultery. We shouldn't have public figures who claim to be Christians yet also promote homosexual marriage as morally equivalent to heterosexual marriage because God's word says that Homosexual marriage is not morally equivalent to heterosexual marriage. We shouldn't have public figures who claim to be Christians and yet also promote transgender ideology or abuse power or stoke racial division or promote policies that allow for the murder of the unborn and so on and so on and so on. But before anyone shares any fire emojis, John the Witness would say, The chainsaw is at the root of your tree because he's seen way too many who would say amen to every one of those statements, but yet who are also engaged Christian couples who think it's okay to sleep with each other because we might be married someday. John has seen way too many who would say amen to every one of those statements, but yet look at pornography every week. He's seen way too many people say amen to every one of those statements, but they haven't been an active member in a local church for decades, a place where they're known and loved and serve and tithe and belong. But oh boy, they know how to tell people to live for Jesus. That's the fire of John the Witness. The ministry of John the Witness was not to say the chainsaw sits at some guy's chair or tree over there, but to say it lays at the root of the Christian forest and to quote him directly, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, Luke 3.9. I describe John the witness as faithful rather than merely a bold witness because he knew what the moment called for. In other words, boldness is not the only tool in the toolbox. Christians also have tears. King David once wrote, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Psalm 119, verse 136. Prophets like Jeremiah and at times Jesus also had tears when they pleaded with people. But I do love that John knew when it was time to swing the hammer or as it were, the axe. But we need to see John not only as a faithful witness, but also as a human witness. I mean something very specific by this. He was not the light, but bore witness to the light. 
He was not God, but bore witness to God. And John knew this. John knew he was a human witness. There's something really good about knowing who you are and who you're not. Note the flow of the beginning of this gospel. Again, what is often called the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, down in verse 3. All things were made through Him, the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, big deal. Then verse 6, there was a man sent. He's told what to do. What's the implication? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and there was a man. What's the implication? John the witness ain't God. John is only a human witness. And for all his faithful, bold, fiery preaching, He's also limited and weak and had doubts. And it's in this way he also, also, not despite this, but also shows us what it looks like to be a faithful human witness to the light. We see some of his humanness in Luke 7. After John is put in prison for his comments about Herod's adultery, John begins to become disillusioned. He begins to have doubts, sitting alone in jail. So John sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask, here's the quote, are you the one to come? Or shall we look for another? Can you imagine, like, after all that he said, all that he's done, here, now he's personally in jail. He's like, what, what he's really asking is, are you the light or did I mess this up? Same guy. Jesus, John says, or Jesus, John says to him in prison, I'm in prison, I'm here because I'm following you. I've done nothing wrong. Are you the Messiah or not? My experience of your rule and reign neither looks like I want it to look, nor even how places in the Bible seem to suggest that it will look. Some of us might say, Jesus, I have cancer. My experience of your rule and reign neither looks like I think it should look, nor how even the Bible in some places seems to say that it will look. Others might say, Jesus, I've lost my job. My experience of your rule and reign neither looks like how some places in the Bible says it will look nor how I feel it should look. Others might say, Jesus, my parents are getting a divorce and I don't want to split time between them. I want them to love each other, to be a family, just like you want for us. My experience of your rule and reign neither looks like I think it should look, nor how even some places in the Bible seem to suggest that it will look when the Messiah comes to rule. What's going on? How will Jesus answer these questions? 
Here's what we read in Luke 7. After John sends the disciples to Jesus to ask the question, are you the guy? Or did we miss it? Luke 7, 21. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. So he does all this. And he answered them, meaning John's disciples. Quote, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't answer John's question, at least directly. I'll put it like this. If I were at an airport and I saw someone who looked like Michael Jordan, I could go up to him and say, Excuse me, sir, are you MJ? And the person could answer me with a yes. Or I suppose the person could unzip their jacket with their Chicago Bulls uniform on, reach over to their gym bag, unzip it, and you see the rings on their finger, palm the basketball, dribble between a pile of people, and dunk it like that, the iconic jump man pose, on a ledge that was 12 feet high. There'd be two different ways to answer the question, wouldn't it? Two ways to answer the question, are you Michael Jordan or should I look for another? (laughs) Jesus, John asks, are you the one who is enough for every need we could ever have? Jesus answers, well, I could tell you a simple yes, but why don't I spend an hour or two doing many of the things that the book of Isaiah says the Messiah is going to do. And I know the book of Isaiah means a lot to you, John, because in other parts of your ministry that Benjamin isn't quoting right now, you've quoted the gospel of, or the gospel of Isaiah. I want to call it the gospel of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. So you know the book of Isaiah, John. And so I'm going to go do a whole bunch of things that the Messiah says, that Isaiah said the Messiah was going to do so that you'll know when I heal the sick and give sight to the blind and raise the dead and preach good news to the poor. You'll know that I am the one who has come. The one who is your light when all the other lights go out and I'm enough. I'm enough for you when you're in jail. I'm enough for you when you have cancer. I'm enough when there's a divorce. The point I want to stress, and so to bring it to, bring it to us, okay, you and I, this is what I want to stress. That when John has doubts, he brings them to Jesus. Actually, to be more specific, he gets believing friends to go bring them to Jesus because he can't even do it. Your doubts about God are not dangerous unless you let them be. If you hide your human doubts or ignore your doubts, or cultivate your doubts, or never confess your doubts to other church members, then yeah, they're going to grow. They're going to get bigger. But when brought into the light, when shared with others, when confessed to Jesus, your human doubts might be the very avenue where you come to know God better. Which is what he wants for us. Ultimately, 
John dies in prison. He's beheaded. It's a story I don't have time to get into. We're on the last page. But we read in Matthew at the end of that story about Herod and the adultery and thrown in prison. At the end of that section, Matthew 14, we read this. And his disciples came and took the body and burned it. And they went and told Jesus. I think the ESV breaks this section apart. But watch what happens when you put it together. And his disciples, John's disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He cared. He cared. And that brings us full circle to the language of witness. The language of witness invokes courtrooms. Witnesses do what? They bear witness. That's what they do. That's what John did. But as the gospel of John goes on, a question develops. Who's really on trial? Who's really on trial? At first, it seems as though Jesus is on trial, and all these witnesses are going to witness about him. There's truth to that. But as the gospel goes on, the attention in the book shifts. It's not Jesus who is on trial, but readers. The evidence is clear. Witness after witness after witness shows that Jesus is the Messiah who saves his people. So the question comes to you and I, dear readers, what will we do with the light? Will we receive him and believe in him and follow him? Or will we reject him? That's, so Pastor Ben, when he preaches next week, the next verses in John, that's exactly where this goes. John, the witness, is not putting Jesus on trial, but us into our dark, fractured world. Even a dark, fractured world within Christianity with so many different hot takes about so many top, different topics. John, the witness, asks us if we really believe that Jesus is the light. Look at our verses again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light What does it say? That all might believe through him. God's desire is that all would believe. That's where the whole book of John goes when you come to the end. It's written so that people would believe and to be more concrete. It's written so that you might believe. And in so believing that you might become a faithful human witness to the light in a dark world. The light of Jesus Christ spreads, not merely by Jesus shining in the sky, but by God coming and lighting your light and you lighting others. Very much the way we light candles at the Christmas Eve service. One lit candle lighting another and another and another until the world doesn't feel so dark. Which is a way to say, you have a role to play. You have a role to play. It's a faithful human witness to the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, I, I acknowledge there are all, all different 
people here this morning, those who, who, who don't know you as the light of the world, I pray that that would be clear to them. Lord, there's those who, who feel like they've got to say something hard. They feel like they understand a love for you, that love of truth that leads to a hard thing, and they're, they're afraid. And there are others, Lord, who have doubts and worries and struggles, and they don't know what to do with them. Lord, I just pray for all of us that you would warm our hearts in the light of Jesus Christ. For your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name.